This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out, Talking Science, episode number 47, recorded on November 20th, 2021. Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast about all things science. I'm Dr. Abi Abdallah, and I'm here with Dr. Fawner. We are missing Dr. Keller today. Yeah, it's a busy time in the semester for all three of us. And uh, the schedule just couldn't allow it, unfortunately. And with teaching and everything and all the big things he does, it's it, it, it's going to become tight for all three of us as we get uh, more and more famous at LeCom. <laughs> yeah, he's been a busy guy. And, Very busy. Uh, uh, we've every, every week we've been trying to record for the last three weeks and, you know, one of us could not make it. So we eventually decided to just uh, go with whoever can show up and get an episode out to our listeners. That's it. All right. So uh, November 20th, uh, famous day. Tell us about it. So um, Edwin Hubble, born November 20th, 1889 and died September 28th, 1953. Um, as you can imagine, as we are going to reveal, a uh, pretty famous last name here. He was an American astronomer. He got his BS and PhD from the University of Chicago, and he played a critical role and is considered the father of extragalactic astronomy. That sounds like something Star Wars or Star Trek related. Um, he was one of the first people to provide the f- initial evidence for the theory of the expanding um, never-ending universe. And he also proved that many objects that were initially thought to be gas and dust were actually galaxies that were just beyond the realm, I suppose, of our Milky Way. And um, of course, as you can imagine, his name being Dr. Edwin Hubble, his name is perhaps most famously known for being named or this, the famous telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope, was named after Edwin Hubble. And um, he actually didn't have much to do with the design, though that came about decades later. But nice that this kind of, the person at the forefront of, you know, giving us our modern take on galaxies and the expanding universe and things that are outside of our galaxy, it's nice that that telescope was appropriately named for him. Yeah, that was, uh, so he died in 53, right? And the Hubble yep. telescope wasn't launched till like the 90s or something yep. like that, right? But apparently he campaigned really hard. Uh, this guy's won a lot of awards, obviously, right? And um, one of the things he did not win was a Nobel Prize and uh, not because he didn't do any science worthy of it, uh, but the uh, physics prize at the time of uh, Hubble's, uh, lifespan, I suppose, did not honor uh, astronomy. It wasn't. It wasn't the Nobel Committee did not look at astronomy as part of the physics prize, and there wasn't an astronomy, you know, uh, prize on its own. That's and a he shame. campaigned. Yeah, it is a shame. Yeah, he campaigned throughout his life really strongly to get astronomy included. Yeah, as a science that the Nobel Committee looked at, and I think now they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was it was done after, after his, his time. death. And yeah. they don't award them posthumously. Which I think I was just about to ask that to cl- to make sure I thought that they didn't 
do that. Yeah, they don't. And personally, I feel like they might want to consider doing that just because there are a lot of, you know, a lot of previous scientists who did a lot. I agree. Yeah. But, you know, the award comes with a good chunk of money, right? Yep. So it, it leaves you, I guess, with the committee, it leaves you with the, like, who do you give the money to, I suppose, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. um, the only case I know of, um, there might be more, but the only case I know of where someone uh, got their award posthumously was uh, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. It was sometimes in the 2000s. And it was awarded to the guy when he was still alive. And then, you know, they, they announced them a few months before they actually award them in December. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they announced his award in September. And then between September and December, he actually died. And mm. uh, it, it was the guy that discovered DC's, I forget his name. God, immunologists listening out there are probably shaking their head. <laughs> Disappointed. <laughs> I know, I know. But um uh, uh, but yeah, so he, he did effectively, I, I think his family received the award, but anyway, that's good. Uh, let's do a quick coronavirus update. What do we got? Okay. So, uh, worldwide cases as of yesterday being updated, uh, the worldwide cases are at 256 million, um, worldwide deaths sitting at approximately 5.1 million, um, cases in the U S 48.4 million and deaths in the U.S. sitting at approximately 790,000. In terms of the vaccination effort, about 10% are partially uh, partially vaccinated, and this is in the U.S. Um, fully vaccinated individuals sitting at about 58%, and then the total, adding those together, which include the partial vaccinations, uh, 68%. Um, the global vaccination effort increasing and quite large at approximately 7.6 billion doses having been provided. That means about 52.6 of the world's population has received at least one of the doses and 5% of people in low income countries have received at least one dose as well, which again, that number is pretty low and something that hopefully increases and becomes more of a focus over the next few months. And I guess years at this point. You know, this is officially America's deadliest pandemic. Well, uh, you can uh, say the, that until you're blue in the face, and some people <laughs> would uh, not really believe that or take yeah. it seriously, unfortunately. The flu, 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, uh, it's estimated it had killed roughly around 670 to 700,000 Americans. And this is so now we're well over that 790,000. And I think we're going to surpass <laughs> a million uh, quite easily, sadly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, every death at this point, almost every death is preventable between the yeah. vaccine, the multiple, the fi- multiple pills that we're going to talk about, one yep. of them, the boosters, the medication, the monoclonal antibody usage mm-hmm. uh, at this point. It just seems like, I don't know, with the amount of effort, resources, money that's being put into the variety of different methods for administration of the vaccine of ways to not prevent but to mitigate severe disease progression the amount of resource time energy that's being put into this and personally for me to only have 58 percent being fully vaccinated and to have a large chunk of 
in a large proportion of individuals who just seem to not want to take this seriously. I'll put it lightly. I don't know. It's, it, it, it's hard not to feel demoralized a bit, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. You know, it's sadly, this is going to become a cyclical infection when we are never going to get to COVID zero, this is going to no. become a, a cyclical seasonal flu called coronavirus. It's just yep. going to be there. Yep. You're right. All right. So, uh, any uh, updates from the news? Uh, not really. I mean, cases are kind of creeping up again, right? I don't know about down up in north uh, they are, Florida. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know what the stats are kind of near you, what's going on down in Florida in terms tape of... Tape it down, I think, a bit. Okay. But we'll see what happens as winter comes. But Yeah. And by winter, I mean 70 degrees. And maybe in a future episode, winter, 70 degrees. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, we're... Uh, we had two 60 degree days this past week and everybody was pretty happy about that. You know, going into work with spring jackets and then literally on the second day for 60 degrees, I think it started in the morning at 60 and hit 40 by the time work yeah. was over. Yeah. And I walked out and that cold blast just hits you right in the face. Well, you know, uh, Lee Com Bradenton is hiring, you know, just FYI. Oh. Okay, we want that out in the public. Okay, well, everybody in Fizz and Lecom and Erie who's listening, I guess I'm moving to Florida soon. That's a joke. I'm mm. kidding. I would never survive in Florida. All right, so what do we got? So boosters now approved for all adults in the U.S.? Yep. And Pfizer came out with a pill just like Merck's? And I think since we last recorded is when, was that before they announced the new age kind of... Uh, yeah, that is true. You're right. Yeah. Now, uh, pretty much the vaccine is what is it can be administered for individuals, for or kids and children up up to or as low as how old you said? Five? I think is it. I, I think it's five. That was five years old. Yes, yeah, I agree. I, I, we can double check on that, but I, I, I think it's fine. Uh, so see. good, more people being protected, um, kids, especially with the new strains. Uh, seem to be a little bit more susceptible to these infections and getting sick. Now they are going to be protected once, you know, they hit the age of five. So yeah, really five good and news. older for Pfizer. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. really good news. Yeah. All right. So uh, moving on for this episode, scientific study, we've got an interesting one, uh, courtesy of Dr. Benton. Uh, she brought it to uh, our attention. Uh, she's a microbiologist down here. So this is the title of the study is Consumption of Coffee and Tea and Risk of Developing Stroke, Dementia, and Post-Stroke Dementia. And this was a cohort study from the UK Biobank. So these uh, authors, this is uh, uh, published in a PLOS uh, a journal. Mm -hmm. Actually published uh, four days ago, November 16th, 2021. Oh, wow. Yeah, fresh off the press. That's great. So the association between coffee and tea consumption and outcomes for stroke and dementia is nothing new, right? There's, there's, there are studies out there in the literature that, that deal with this. However, what's new with this study is that was li little was known about the combination of both uh, mm -hmm. uh, coffee and tea and the risk of stroke dementia and post-stroke dementia. And the reason this is really significant, so stroke and dementia are an increasingly a global health concern as populations live longer, 
these uh, are becoming more, more and more common, and they do carry a considerable economic and social burden. I mean, for that individual, for families, Absolutely. for everybody yeah. Taking involved, care of for someone caring, insurance, yeah. a lot of problems arise from just the actual physical sickness. I agree. I agree. So this was a prospective cohort study, right? So what they did in this study between the periods and, you know, this, the, what I love about this, it also shows how long studies take and how much ded- dedication it takes to do something like this, right? Well, yeah, I mean, 2006, from when participants began joining, all the way up until 2020. So they were followed. So so people joined this study between 2006 and 2010. So there was a four-year period to join this study. And uh, 365,682 participants between the ages of 50 and 74 joined this study. And then they were, they were followed for 10 years, right? Because, you know, dementia and strokes, these are uh, diseases that happen later on in life, right? So they, they, they followed these people for 10 years. And then uh, 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 they looked at their coffee and tea intake. And um, here's, here's what they found. So coffee intake of two to three cups a day or tea intake of three to five cups a day or a combination of four to six cups a day of both. Of total, okay. Uh-huh total, were linked with the lowest hazard ratio of incident of stroke and dementia. And then to get a little bit more specific, so two to three cups of coffee combined with two to three cups of tea daily were associated with a 32% lower risk of stroke and a 28% lower risk of dementia. Wow. So they did def- not get into the weeds of what happens, mm-hmm. right? There are a lot of papers out there for our listeners if they want to see. For like the oh, mechanism? Uh-huh. uh-huh okay. Absolutely. Like uh, what receptors are activated with caffeine and, you know, what signaling pathways happen. You know, we can talk Possible about that in a sensitization yeah. with continued exposure to caffeine on the receptors. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We can talk about that in a future episode. Yeah, we but- can follow up on that. Yeah. So in, in so the main conclusion here is that they found that drinking coffee and tea separately or in combination were associated with lower risks for stroke and dementia. Hmm. And uh, intake of coffee alone or in combination with tea was also associated with a lower risk of post-stroke dementia. So the benefit, I guess, to the general population and sort of the science in 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 as a whole is, you know, the potential benefit for these drinks, which a lot of people drink on a, on a daily basis, right? Some cultures more than others, etc. Yeah. Uh, some of the uh, uh, drawbacks, I guess, or limitations of the study is that, and the authors kind of admit that themselves, is that these numbers are self-reported. So they could, there could be some subjective variation here in terms of how much they actually drank on a given day right. over a long right. term. Okay. The intake levels of coffee and tea is 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 self-reported. And we don't know what kind of tea we I was gonna know. say, do they did they report or include details on I guess their forms that they not that assume. not that I saw. Not that okay. I saw. Is it is it black tea? Is it green tea? Is it okay. uh, herbal tea, right? Is it mm-hmm. uh, I mean the coffee <sighs> I'm How sure it has to be ca- it or... caffeinated, of but, course. you know, eh, 
but like was what type of what we don't know yeah right? were the types consistent again uh -huh. even like brewing so mm -hmm. brewing will have different levels and different degrees of strength depending right. on how you are brewing right. the coffee yeah. okay yeah. so a little bit of yeah some confounding factors there but but an interesting study i thought and you know again this is nothing new but you know it was hot off the press and well if we needed a reason to drink more coffee on a daily basis at work yeah I'm like i use... need more coffee <laughs> i uh this is i guess a shout out to um if maricelli uh still downloads and listens um two weeks ago i think we were down in the cafeteria grabbing just lunch or coffee or whatever and she saw it was a busy day i, I don't think i'd had lunch i was getting my coffee my third of the day and i was also getting a diet coke and she just looks at it and then looks at me and she goes chris what are you doing? And I said, Oh, she goes, Too much? Is it, she goes, is that your first or second coffee of the day? I said, Nope, it's my third. Yeah. She goes, wow, you, you, you might want to consider taking it easy. And I said, yeah, but, my doctor know, said so too. Uh, as some of you know, my addiction to coffee is so intense that I grow my own. <laughs> I have coffee trees out in the back, but uh, anyway, so let's move on to some more Nobel Prize. So uh, we did physiology in the last episode. We're doing chemistry. In this one, we'll do the physics next and then Ig Nobel in, uh, 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 coming up. So the chemistry prize, uh, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences awarded that to two people, Benjamin List and David McMillan. Benjamin List is, the, is at the Max Planck Institute and David McMillan is at Princeton University in the U.S., and they were both awarded the prize for the development of asymmetric organocatalysis. That is Sounds very cool and very fancy sounding. <laughs> I know, I know. So what is catalysis? What is a catalyst? So a catalyst, in sim simplest terms, you know, we can describe, it's a molecule that can increase a, the rate or the speed of a chemical reaction without itself being consumed or changed by that reaction. So it comes out of the reaction, emerges from that reaction completely unchanged. And actually, you know, the Nobel Committee has awarded uh, Nobel Prizes in chemistry for work related to catalysts and catalysis in, in uh, six or seven different times. The first one was 1909. And you know, actually, I, I dug it up on their website. And, and this is a verbatim from the uh, Nobel Prize website. So the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1909 was awarded to Wilhelm Ostwald in recognition of his work on catalysis and for his investigations into the fundamental principles governing chemical equilibria and rates of reaction. So the first Nobel Prize about, you know, chemistry related to catalysts went out in 1909. But this one, so... The reason this one is cool is that for the longest time, scientists believed that catalysts can be uh, only enzymes. Mm -hmm. That only enzymes were catalysts, and uh, and again, enzymes, they they nope. really help to increase the rate of a chemical reaction. Like without these, some chemical reactions oh, would in die. the body would take yeah years yeah, yeah. to occur. Without, without enzymes, we would not be alive. Absolutely. And I, I mean, just thinking back, if any students are listening out there, you know, the five or six that are listening from the different years of uh, medical school at Lecom, uh, one of the 
probably most important ones that we've talked about a lot in fizz is our carbonic anhydrase, which is going to catalyze the reaction of water and carbon dioxide to form carbonic acid. And that's going to be one of the key ways in which we transport carbon dioxide throughout the body and then eventually expire it to remove it from the body. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing about enzymes, though, is they're great. They're fantastic. They do a fantastic, great job, but they're naturally made and they do well inside bodies, right? They, they don't do well uh, or so well uh, in chemical reactions, right? So to use them for industrial purposes, it's really hard. Also, uh, for the longest time, you had to isolate them from a living thing. You could not produce them, you know, in, in enzymes, you could, biological enzymes. You could not produce them in laboratories, right? And then came the discovery later that metal compounds can also do catalysis, right? They can also be used as catalysts. And for the longest time, we thought that was it. It was just biological enzymes and metal compounds. And up until roughly two decades ago, so 20 years or so, uh, organic catalysis came around. And and uh, uh, organic catalysis, what, what makes them so special is that uh, these guys discovered a process where you can create a catalyst in the lab. It's completely organic. There are no metal elements found in it. The problem with metal compounds used as catalysts is that they can be dangerous, right? Metals are harmful for humans. They're highly reactive. They have to be kept under special conditions. So make, working with them was extremely difficult, right? Mm -hmm. And enzymes, you had to isolate them in sm small, minute amounts from bodies. So it wasn't economic right? So these organic catalysts, they're basically uh, uh, can be generated in labs, they don't need to be isolated. And what they do is that they are molecules that they're organic molecules, they bind to reacting molecules themselves. And they form these short lived intermediate products, right? So we're going from step A to step B, but we're somewhere in, in the middle, right? We're somewhere yep. between step A and step B. And they interact with, with this molecule. And what's really neat about this asymmetric organic catalysis is that because of the shape of the molecule, then they can force the reaction to add to one place of the molecule rather than like say randomly or both sides, right? So What's cool about it is that you can add molecules to one side of an existing molecule. So you can create products that are, you know, uh, 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 controlled in how they look or the shape that they look, right? So they're pretty think specific. Of, yeah. So think of think of like handedness, right? So here's you know, people are watching, like here's a hand, right? Four finger, five fingers, right? I can add a thumb on this side and, you know, create a left hand, or I can add a thumb on the other side and create a right hand, right? Mm -hmm. So create a mirror image of something, right? So, um, so that's what makes this organic, this asymmetric organic catalysis so important is that you can create mirror images of something or mirror, mm -hmm. you know, molecules that are mirror images of each other. And if we, if you guys, so, you know, some of our listeners may know, but some may not. So you can create the same molecule, right? But if you create the mirror image of it, it interacts differently in the body. Some of them are actually therapeutic. Some of them mm -hmm. are poisonous. Yep. Some of them taste like one thing, but the mirror image tastes like completely something else, right? Mm -hmm. So mirror images are, 
the way they interact with the receptors in the body is just insane. That just the same molecule, but a mirror image of it, just a completely different thing, right? So that's yeah. that's the power of this uh, asymmetric organic catalysis. But pretty cool. Yeah. So what else we got today? So remember, one of our listeners, uh, Jen, Jen Hasselow emailed us and uh, she, she used to be one of our students in, in class. And I guess uh, she came across uh, aquagenic urticaria and she asked about it and um, we did some digging. And Jen, if you're listening, I hope you're listening, but uh, so uh, we'll email her, make sure she downloads. a lot out there. Okay, let me tell you, I could not find information. I've, I've, I had heard of it before you mentioned it to us. And, but I did, personally did not know much about it. I, so, yeah. A, very, very small oh number God, of obscure. cases I did actually not, recorded I did in not the literature. I did not find it wow. in an immunology textbook. Wow. At least, at least the ones we use, right? Hmm. Uh, CMI, I have cellular molecular immuno- immunology by a boss. It's not in there. Wow. Um, I found it in. One of the medical textbooks, I think Goldman's uh, medical textbook, uh, but there's one line on it, one line, right? And so then really I did had some dig. digging in PubMed. Uh, you know, she sent me on a rabbit hole, Jen. And then <laughs> I did some digging in PubMed, and I found a few things in PubMed. But the reason I bring all of this up, Jen, if you're listening and you want to write a review on aquagenic urticaria there is not a lot give me a call send me an email (laughs) that field you would get a you could get a really good literature review and probably be send me an email i am happy to write this with you but anyway so what is urticaria urticaria is pretty much just a skin reaction right so red itchy welts hives and they can vary in size and appearance and they usually fade away as the reaction takes its course right Mm-hmm. Um, if they appear frequently and, and, and reappear frequently, then it's considered sort of a chronic uh, hives condition. And uh, they can, in some patients, they can, you know, occur for six weeks, uh, months, even years. Mm-hmm. But aquagenic urticaria is pretty much a very rare, extremely rare, inducible form of physical uh, urticaria this those hives this red itchiness uh, bumpiness you know an allergic reaction effectively on the skin and there are around 50 to 60 cases reported in the literature and that is it so incredibly incredibly rare incredibly rare, rare extremely wow. rare right but still i mean even that it's so rare uh we still don't know what really causes it i mean the no, actual so we, mechanisms we know we know it's aquagenic meaning that uh people have a, a skin hives wheels allergic reaction to water uh cutaneous mm-hmm. meaning skin exposure to water including sweat and tears can cause people to have these reactions it was first described in 1964 it is more prevalent among females than males which holds true for most autoimmune diseases anyway mm-hmm. it is poorly understood there are multiple hypotheses as to why it happens. The first hypothesis came out also in the 60s, and it was that water reacts with some of the oils and fats on the skin. So with the sebum or the sebaceous glands, right? Mm-hmm. That's the medical term for these oils yep. and fats on the skin. 
and it causes a reaction to form a toxic substance that then causes the activation of the immune system that then causes the hives and the rash. Mm -hmm. Another hypothesis is that water causes a change in the osmotic pressure around hair follicles leading to the reaction. So something more mechanical, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Mechanically driven. Okay. Uh Another hypothesis revolves around the existence of some proteins. We, they still don't know what they are. I was going to say, would these be only in those individuals or those cases, those people afflicted with this disorder? They have a particular set or a specific antigen that when it reacts and dissolves in water causes yeah, this condition. That's, that's what wow. they think, right? And so they know that in most people, the reaction is mediated by a molecule called histamine, right? And we've all heard of histamines, even those of us who aren't scientists or immunologists, people take an antihistamine for their allergic reactions, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Spring comes along and you feel miserable, you take an antihistamine, right? So, but it turns out there were a few patients where histamine levels were not measured or they were not elevated. Mm-hmm. So leading to some scientists think, well, is it histamine mediated? Is it not? Right. But then there's the idea. Did you look at the right time? Did you level histamine? Did you measure levels of histamine correctly? So on and so forth. But anyway, so we don't know. We know it's caused by water. We don't know the mechanism of how it's caused. We know it's extremely rare. Most patients present with that wheels and flares reaction, right? It's that intense itchiness and burning sensation, some prickling sensation, but it goes away within 30 to 60 minutes, right? After you remove the insulting agent, which is water, right? Mm -hmm. So the symptoms are localized for the most part. They're rarely generalized. They're rarely systemic, meaning that they're rarely all over the body. They usually happen where contact with water exists. You're not going to have this occurring in the skin and then have respiratory issues such as rarely, the shortness of rarely. breath. Okay. There have been a couple of cases where people have that systematic reaction where mm-hmm. they, they have the allergic reaction you know, on the skin and then it goes systemic, right? Okay. Uh, for management and treatment, mostly antihistamines, you know, or removal of the offending agent, which is which is water. And mm. the the thing about this is the diagnosis is extremely difficult, right? So it is usually done by elimination. So you have to eliminate other causes of urticaria or this, you know, wheels and reaction itching, blah blah blah, before landing on this one, right? And the, the, the recommendation is to have a patient there and, you know, have a wet towel put on them for, you know, 10, 20 minutes and see if they develop a reaction. But Which is, it could be annoying and infuriating when you could be suffering from this and it could take a few visits, some oh yeah. probably oh yeah. frustrating and unpleasant um, allergy tests and procedures to finally identify this very rare condition. And then to not have a solution, right? So, yep. I mean, you'd you have like, do you take a histamine, bef- an antihistamine before you shower, you know, yep. uh, you know, things like that, right? Uh, uh, or, or you have to be in conditions where you're not sweating uh, all the time, you know? Yep. Um, there, there's a report I saw where they use some sort of an oil emulsion, especially in pediatric patients. Uh, they cover them in like this sort of like Vaseline type thing before they shower them or whatever. So like they, or before they get exposed to water, so they don't have the reaction. Right. So it's a, there's a lot of stuff out there that's 
not necessarily experimented or proven experimentally because it's extremely rare and you know it's not it's not studied extensively okay but yeah it uh, took a while to find some <laughs> information in in textbooks it's it's not it's not in textbooks man and that's again I guess because it is not when you think about high yield topics, right, which we always talk about at the medical school level and uh -huh. even undergraduate level, thinking about kind of the rarity of certain conditions. And unfortunately, although there are people in cases who have experienced this disorder in terms of something that, okay, should you know or remember? Yeah, it's a useful bit of knowledge, but high yield, it just doesn't seem right. to be right. that prolific. Not just that, also you have to think of, in addition to that kind of high yield, right? Sometimes medicine, at least in, in say the, the US or Western countries is taught with uh, certain uh, uh, prevalence of Western medicine or Western diseases, right? So uh, in, in parasitology, for example, when we teach parasitology to medical students, maybe there's one slide in your entire medical school curriculum on Oncocerca volvulus or Loa yeah. Loa, a disease of high burden in Africa, but you're not going to see it over here, right? You're not going to see it, you know, you're not going to get exposed to it unless you have a traveler or you're doing some uh, medicine, uh, or well, medicine think about, over there, you know? Well, think about a good example that is relevant now is two years ago, if you were to, or two, three, four years ago, if you were to give an immunology lecture, or microbiology time, on coronavirus. One slide. How much time would you have spent uh -huh. on coronaviruses? One slide, and we would have told the students, don't worry about this, you'll never see it. Yep. And uh -huh. now it's going to be uh -huh. something that, it, how many slides would you maybe give it now? At oh least my God, now an entire lecture. <laughs> or an entire lecture, yep. Now it's an entire lecture because it has cl clinical manifestations. How do you yep. treat a patient? What kind of, when do you give oxygen? When do you not give oxygen? What, what position do you put the patient in? Get out. There's so within, a lot now. There's a lot within now. the span of two years, uh -huh. science and that specific small subset that was before, I won't say irrelevant, but it just it wasn't high yield. It no, wasn't no. Three, prolific. Three years it ago, wasn't literally, I, I actually did. This is a good point you bring up, but and I actually looked at slides from three, four years ago. One slide on SARS viruses, mm -hmm. and in an entire medical school curriculum, one slide on SARS viruses, and it was one of these things. Oh, you know, rarely happens. Outbreak, you know, everyone's not, don't worry about. It. Mm -hmm. But here we are. It's yeah. amazing. Here we uh, are. Uh, <laughs> All right, on to you. What did you? Uh, what's what's our founders fun physio fact for the for the day? So this was this was kind of cool in terms of using a treatment for one condition and trying to apply it and uh, use it for another condition. And, you know, both conditions being generally, you know, pretty bad and something you don't want to develop as you grow older. But um, researchers from the Delmont Institute for Neuroscience, which is at the University of Rochester in New York, performed a study in mice using this synthetic drug that's called uh, glatiramer acetate or GA. So glutyramer acetate is this uh, synthetic protein that basically is going to simulate um, the basic protein known as myelin, which this myelin protein is making up the myelin sheath that insulates our nerve fibers 
in the brain, spinal cord, you know, all of our nerve fibers that are important for electrical communication throughout the body. And um, uh, glutyrimer acetate, what it generally does is it basically helps with um, in uh, people with MS. Um, it's going to help to block certain T cells that can potentially damage um, the myelin sheath and thus, um, the, thus lead to uh, multiple sclerosis, which is obviously pretty bad, right? Which involves the damage and depletion of myelin around your nerves. And what the scientists did here was using mice, they wanted to see if a uh, prolonged treatment, so eight weeks of treatment or administration of glutyrimer acetate, if they used these mice with mutations that basically in, uh, made them develop uh, certain symptoms and aspects of Alzheimer's disease. So the characteristic uh, protein plaques and pathology of Alzheimer's disease when the mice were about 12 months of age. Uh, so they were given a few different injections of um, glutyrimer acetate over eight weeks. The control group received a control injection of phosphate buffered saline and um, such as salt water. Exactly. And again, with GA, it's been used for a while to treat MS because it modifies and changes the immune T cell responses. So that basically the immune response against your myelin sheath is less aggressive. The mechanism is still currently unknown. They just know that with the treatment using GA, glutyrimer acetate, it appears to dampen those T cell responses. The immune response is less aggressive, helps to alleviate some um, MS symptoms and pathology. What this study found with these mice that were exhibiting symptoms and uh, morphologies of Alzheimer's disease they saw changes in brain morphology after the administration of eight weeks with glutyrimer acetate. And this may indicate that memory was improved after GA treatment. They did you know, memory tests and memory studies that we're not going to go into here, but they did see that memory seemed to improve after uh, GA treatment. And specifically, they saw that um, microglia um, kind of supporting cells in the nervous system showed morph morphological changes that were consistent with these microglia becoming more activated. Hmm. And um, again, kind of subtle, uh, these, these subtle changes, right? Um, uh, well, essentially with the control group, those groups that have Alzheimer's disease, when these microglia um, become more activated and show different morphologies, uh, that's an indication with these mice that have Alzheimer's disease and those plaques and whatnot, the overactivation of those microglia, that's indicating something's not right. And so, what, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, and in the mice that had Alzheimer's disease that were treated with glutyrimer acetate, uh, the microglia were on average less activated after GA treatment. So, so by kind of dampening responsiveness and activation of the microglia, indicating that you're doing something in the brain that's helping with the management or alleviation of it. Alzheimer's disease. 
So I'm trying to think, right? So Alzheimer's disease is when you have the accumulation of plaques in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. And these plaques are formed when uh, protein pieces called beta amyloids start clumping together, right? And they Mm -hmm. they start becoming uh, sticky and they gradually build up in there, right? And microglia... They're actually are sort of the macrophages. Immune. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're immune cells, right? So they're the macrophages of the brain. So, and macrophages are phagocytic cells, and phagocytosis is eating things up, right? So, in the central nervous system, in the brain nervous tissue, the microglia are essentially, again, these supporting immune cells. They're basically the first and primary line of defense when it comes to immunity in the CNS, in the central nervous yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 they're responding immune cell in there. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, right, so if, if, if they're super activated as immune responders to this presence of these plaques or whatever, right, and then this, this uh, uh, GA treatment, right, the uh, glatarimer acetate, am I saying Makes that them- right? Is that glatarimer acetate? Uh, yeah, glutaramer, glutaramer yeah. acetate. So yep. I'm wondering if, if that's dampening the inflammation via downregulation right, or decreasing right. the activity of and the that anti-inflammatory process is what uh, slows down or improves some Alzheimer function. And again, whether this is kind of long-term, short-term. Um, but these guys don't, don't know, know right? Yet. They didn't. Yeah. They didn't talk about that, did they? Uh, I don't believe so. No, at least not as far as I got in that study. So they did. They did find somewhat changes in gene expression, suggesting an alteration of immune activation, but they didn't necessarily pinpoint what happened exactly, right? Yep, exactly. Okay. So um, they don't so know the exact like a, mechanism. They don't know if it's cause and effect at this point. They just, just know that say, there's right. an association. Right. So with the um, treatment with glutaramer acetate, um, by altering, changing immune activation, uh, having less microglia activation, that's an association that's not necessarily acting mechanistically, at least right now, to improve the actual pathology of AD. So basically, basically, we're, we're, we're just saying, oh, we have less activation of immune responses in the brain. And as a mm-hmm. result, we may possibly see an improvement in Alzheimer's. Exactly. Got it. Got yep. it. Cool. And again, this is, um, I want to say, there have been a ton of studies recently. Obviously, AD, Alzheimer's is a pretty uh, in-depth field, a lot of research, money resources going into it. So there's always new studies, you know, on a weekly, you know, almost daily basis, probably examining what's happening with the pathology and treatment of Alzheimer's disease. But with this new treatment and other treatments, I mean, who knows, maybe we're getting a little bit closer. I think recently they said, uh, I forget the company, but was it a nasal spray possible vaccine that might help with AD? I, I don't want to get into too much because we could use that and have a through line for our next episode. But I'm pretty sure one company is close to or getting some very good results in terms of a possible vaccine. No, yeah, let's, uh, let's look into that a little bit more for sure. You know, it's funny uh, that both of our studies today, the one you brought and the one I brought are related to dementia and uh, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's. And- yep. Yeah. Very cool. 
Cool. So we are uh, going to skip the game segment uh, this week. We're going to give you another uh, couple weeks to guess the old one. And uh, we don't have Dr. Keller with us today, and he usually does that for us. So uh, that just means uh, more excitement for the next episode. Yes. And uh, we'll come back in about two weeks. I know we <laughs> took us about four or five weeks to record this one, but uh, we've just been so hectically busy but uh but now that the semester's starting to wind down a little bit for all of us nearing the end of the very busy time of the year yeah. our frequency and hopefully getting out a few more episodes for everybody before the start of the new year absolutely so that brings us to the end of the episode any anything else uh fauna i don't think so just keep tuning in email us if you have kind of any uh recommendations or topics that you'd like to hear us talk about. Again, we try to talk about relevant, innovative pieces of science news as long as well as um, COVID updates, which are occurring on a daily basis. But if there's something out there that you really want us to talk about, something cool, like what um, Jen recommended to yeah, us to the talk about. Yeah, uh, the that uh, sent me on a deep dive. Yeah. So we're more than happy to discuss anything that you want us to talk about or that you want to contribute just let us know yeah yeah absolutely so thank you for listening that's our show for today you can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com again that's thebiobusters at gmail.com if you like our content please uh, share and subscribe uh, you can find us on instagram you can find us on itunes spotify TuneIn, amazon Anywhere uh, you get your podcast, you can find these videos also on Daily Motion. We have links to all of that in the show notes. Follow and share. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank Bye. you.